0: Welcome to New Mexico In Focus, the podcast. Today is Monday, June 28th, 2021, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We have got a great slate of uh, segments and discussions for you this week on the latest episode of New Mexico in Focus. And we're going to kick things off with a discussion from our line opinion panel last week. If you missed the last episode, the line group talked about two big dates this week. Of course, tomorrow, cannabis, recreational use cannabis, officially becomes legal in New Mexico. They also talked about July 1st, which is the date to reopen New Mexico, which means getting rid of all the public health restrictions around COVID-19. So encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't already. But here we'll kick things off with the Kids Count Report. This is something we talk about once a year. It is an annual study that looks at uh, factors around child well-being from teen pregnancy, to child poverty, uh, to educational impacts. New Mexico routinely near or at the bottom of that list. We did see improvements this year, but still we came in at 49th on that list. And that is all even before COVID, which we know made things a lot worse across the country, not just here in New Mexico. But we wanted to talk to the Line Opinion Panel about how much good news we should take out of that jump. And what are the big ideas Uh, That will really make a difference in this area. So we're not just hovering around those last three spots. And we'd love to hear from you on this as well. If you've got big ideas, someone threw out uh, universal income as an idea. There are municipalities, states, uh, even proposals on the national level to make sure that everybody has a baseline income. And uh, is that something you see that would have a major impact and move the needle on child well-being in New Mexico? What other ideas have you heard and who are the people to put those ideas forward so they really gain traction? We want to hear from you. Leave us a message here or search us out on any of our social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Let us know what you think. But here now, host Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel.
1: NEW MEXICO APPEARS TO BE MAKING SOME PROGRESS WHEN IT COMES TO TAKING CARE OF ITS YOUNGEST AND MOST VULNERABLE RESIDENTS. THE LATEST KIDS COUNT REPORT FROM THE ANNIE E. CASEY FOUNDATION RANKS NEW MEXICO 49TH IN THE NATION ON MORE THAN A DOZEN KEY INDICATORS OF CHILD WELL-BEING. Now, THAT'S AN IMPROVEMENT FROM DEAD LAST TWO YEARS AGO. AND Giovanna. THE REPORT DOESN'T TAKE INTO ACCOUNT THE IMPACTS OF THE COVID-19 PANDEMIC BECAUSE THE NUMBERS ARE FROM 2019. HOWEVER, So what are your takeaways? Is this a good sign or just fool's gold here?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, you know, it's hard to really celebrate being 49th in the state, in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we do keep, you know, swapping around 49th and 50th place. And so I understand, you know, the hard work that Voices for Children has been doing. To, and, and other advocates to to get the message out that like we are making some small improvements. Mm-hmm. I think the focus needs to be on what are we measuring, and w- where is the support coming from? Right. Uh, you know the 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 indicators fall into four categories: um, education, health, economics, and family. Mm-hmm. And and that's good. But you know. Uh, a LOT OF THOSE INVESTMENTS ARE ONLY FROM THE STATE. SO uh, THERE'S JUST A LOT GOING ON HERE. And, um, AND I THINK THAT THE CATEGORY OF EQUITY IS NOT INCLUDED ANYWHERE. Mm. Um, I KNOW ADVOCATES, INCLUDING VOICES FOR CHILDREN, ARE DOING AMAZING EQUITY WORK.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: HOWEVER, THE ANNIE E. CASEY FOUNDATION AND THEIR WHOLE NATIONAL RUBRIC FOR, for MEASURING EVERYBODY um, do, DOESN'T REALLY DO THAT YET, I DON'T THINK, um, mm-hmm. AND SO THAT WOULD BE INTERESTING TO LOOK AT. YOU ALWAYS HAVE TO LOOK, YOU KNOW, DIG DOWN INTO WHAT, what ARE WE REALLY TALKING ABOUT HERE? WHAT what ARE WE MEASURING? Mm-hmm. Um, AND and to, TO REALLY SAY there, THERE HAVE BEEN SOME GREAT THINGS THAT THE STATE HAS INVESTED IN AND WE SHOULD ALSO BE ASKING. Um, The business community to invest. You know, Mm. it's not just the state that needs to be doing this. So I think it's not a huge cause for celebration, um, but it's good to dig down and see, you know, what are we really talking about here?
1: Right. You know, Ed Perea, I want to note again the improvements are kind of tricky to kind of talk about here. We're talking about 2019, the 2020 numbers haven't even really come in, but the noted improvements in New Mexico are things like the percentage. OF KIDS LIVING IN POVERTY, TEENAGE PREGNANCY RATES AND THE PERCENTAGE OF KIDS WHO HAVE HEALTH INSURANCE, ALL THOSE THINGS WERE IMPROVING, BUT HOW MUCH OF A DIFFERENCE IS THERE REALLY BETWEEN A RANKING OF 49TH AND 55TH AND 51ST, AS Giovanna IS SAYING? WHEN when CAN WE START ACTUALLY CELEBRATING SOMETHING HERE?
3: GENE, YOU KNOW, I THINK WE TAKE ALL THE IMPROVEMENTS WE CAN GET IN -hmm. WHATEVER CATEGORY THERE ARE AND FOR WHATEVER THE REASONS ARE. WE KNOW WHEN IT COMES TO uh, THOSE CHILDREN WHO HAVE HEALTH INSURANCE, with the expansion of Medicaid, that yep. brought those those numbers down, you know. And, and I think you know we just want to make sure uh, that we continue to improve. However, for as long as I can remember, we've all we've always been 49th or 50th, and back and forth. And, and the question has to be, why, 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 why? Generation you after know. generation, mm-hmm. do our numbers not change? There's something that really needs to be examined. FURTHER, YOU KNOW, we, WE'VE HEARD THE OLD SAYING, YOU KNOW, THANK GOODNESS FOR MISSISSIPPI BECAUSE OTHERWISE WE'D ALWAYS BE LAST. AND, and THAT'S UNFORTUNATE. AND, mm-hmm. YOU KNOW, AS WE'VE uh, MENTIONED BEFORE, YOU KNOW, 49TH DOESN'T MAKE US FEEL GOOD AS as A COMMUNITY.
1: ED, WHAT WOULD FEEL LIKE PROGRESS TO YOU PERSONALLY? I MEAN, IS THERE A NUMBER WHERE YOU WOULD SAY, YOU KNOW WHAT, GUYS, WE'RE ON TRACK HERE, 45TH, 40TH, IN THE 30, YOU KNOW,
3: 38TH? What, WHAT'S YOUR NUMBER? WELL, UNFORTUNATELY, you have your finite number, one through fifty, yeah. and and everyone zero sum some game. Someone if you if you gain, someone else loses. And if you're looking at it sort of nationally, you wouldn't want anyone to go down in their in their rankings, but you would want your rankings to improve. Mm-hmm. So I think you know we we need to set the rankings aside and actually take a look at what we're doing right and continue to prove improve wherever we are and to set our goals and be very focused. On those on achieving those goals mm-hmm. uh, and one mm-hmm. step at a time I think you know we, we have four categorical areas that, that we've seen some improvement there are, there are probably reasons for it and we need to find the other areas and, and really have a laser focus on what we need to do to improve whether it's resources or whether it's philosophy uh, but 49th 50th 48th 47th is not acceptable in my PERSONAL OPINION. SO I THINK WE NEED TO LOOK AT THE BIGGER PICTURE AS WELL. Mm-hmm. SERGE, YOU'RE THE EDUCATOR
1: HERE, CERTAINLY. Um, WHAT DOES IT DO THAT WE SEEM TO FLUCTUATE YEAR TO YEAR BETWEEN THESE BOTTOM THREE SPOTS? DOES IT SHOW THAT WE'RE NOT THINKING BIG ENOUGH ABOUT OUR KIDS, AS ED WAS SORT OF GETTING AT? IT CAN'T BE JUST ABOUT THROWING MORE MONEY AT THE PROBLEM. WHAT ELSE ARE WE MISSING HERE FROM AN EDUCATOR'S POINT OF VIEW? Yeah,
4: SO, I MEAN, I THINK, YOU KNOW, this th- THESE NUMBERS ARE, mis- THEY DON'T TELL US MUCH, RIGHT, okay. Um, and maybe, to, many, to some extent, represent just sort of statewide economic well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know you asked the question whether philosophy was was an important metric, and I think the answer is yes.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Statewide, we've had you know we're on our ballot next year. Will be a constitutional amendment to tap the permanent fund for, for for you know for early childhood mm-hmm. education. That's a real shift, or it should be right a real yep. shift in how we approach this. You know, in New Mexico, the philosophy. Right now, the YAZI Martinez lawsuit. The the you know state is still fighting that and pushing back instead of saying, mm-hmm. yes, we totally embrace this obligation. Mm-hmm. There's a real. Uh, I think philosophically, we should um, say we are actually going to pull out all the stops and do everything we can to address childhood well-being. Uh, you know, at the front end, rather than wait till we get another report and then. Right. If we're doing that, who cares what the number is? Like we said, you know, I don't want to root for any other state to go below us, All right, You know, we, we, I want us all to be tied for number one. I hear you. But, mm-hmm. you know, right? but I think Duexco should be doing more of what it can do. And we're starting, we're trending in that direction a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this should be a wake up call as every year. Is. Sure. Giovanna, please.
2: Yeah, I was going to add to that, Serge, and just say there was a great reporting by Alicia Guzman at Searchlight New Mexico. She did a really nice story about, um, about this and, and really um, talked about the inequities. And you know, when we, when we look at the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit and the, the focus on at-risk kids, I love how um, Elisa Deal, who's an attorney with the New Mexico Center on Law and Poverty, TALKS ABOUT that, THAT POPULATION SAYING IT'S NEW MEXICO'S TRULY DIVERSE AND CULTURALLY GIFTED STUDENT POPULATION. AND IF WE CENTER THEM AND THEIR, their um, DIVERSE and, AND CULTURAL GIFTS, I THINK WE HAVE A DIFFERENT APPROACH. Um, and, AND SO IT'S A MATTER OF, LIKE, WHAT ARE WE CENTERING IN THE CONVERSATION, mm. AND uh, DEFINITELY uh, TAKING A LOOK AT THAT <laughs> WOULD BE A GOOD IDEA.
1: THAT'S A GOOD POINT. Uh, I really appreciate the way you finished that up. It, it, it's it's who's out there with the big ideas. I mean, this is this is what we're looking for. It's just, it's a difficulty. We're going to stay on this right here at New Mexico in focus, no doubt about it. Now,
0: so how do you keep up with New Mexico news? Are you subscribing to various print or online news organizations? Uh, do you Twitter scroll for your news? People have lots of different ways to keep up with all things New Mexico. And there's a new option in the mix. It's kind of a unique approach. It's a newsletter, so delivered straight to your inbox. And it's a roundup of social media news. So pulling from Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, all those places. So it's really hitting on a lot of different areas and a lot of different interests. And we know New Mexico is a very diverse uh, and interesting state so we wanted to learn more about this idea and the brainchild behind it. That brainchild is Marie C. Baca, a reporter who used to work at the Albuquerque Journal, among other places. And her newsletter is called Chili Street. You can subscribe to it uh, online and get that delivered straight in your inbox. But we wanted to find out from her where this idea come, comes from and what she's hoping people get out of it, how she approaches it. She'll even explain some examples of some recent tidbits from the Chili Street newsletter. She uh, hopped onto Zoom this week, or last week, with correspondent Gwyneth Dolan to fill us all in about Chili Street.
5: Marie C. Baca, thank you so much for being with us today. Happy to be here. You've created a newsletter called Chili Street. What is it and why did you start writing it?
6: Yeah, so it's a a free email newsletter. You can sign up at chilistreet.com. And what it does is that it collects the most interesting stories from across New Mexico's social media across platforms. So Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, everything else.
5: So I take it during the pandemic, you uh, started spending a lot of time looking at your phone
6: yeah so a a little bit about its origins i had actually started it back in 2018 and only got out a few issues back then it was more of a news roundup um, maybe a couple stories here and there that i felt like should be more amplified but yeah, once the pandemic hit and I found myself needing a break from homeschooling my two lovely children, uh, I decided to bring it back and uh, quickly found that the stories that I was seeing across New Mexico social media were the ones that were really getting a strong response from my readers.
5: street fitting in the news ecosystem for your readers.
6: Yeah. So I think that there are some amazing news organizations and amazing journalists in New Mexico, but I don't see anyone covering social media itself as a beat. It's actually not something that's done very often nationally. Most even larger organizations don't have the budget for it, but it's becoming more common. So I see this as being something that can uh, not only amplify existing news coverage, but is really going to Uh, find new stories and uh, collect uh, interesting uh, ideas from the people who may not be visiting news websites or read a newspaper, but they're on social media. And that's, you know, many, many, many New Mexicans.
5: And I don't want people to think you're knocking journalism or mainstream media because you wrote for the Albuquerque Journal and the Washington Post. I mean, you are you have been mainstream media, but you're looking, oh, at, it. You're
6: looking yeah. at it differently. I, I see this as uh, something that can be complementary to, to existing media. Um, and the truth is, is that news organizations are trying to do the best they can with really limited resources um, and have you know, amazing people employed. I mean, most of my best friends are New Mexico journalists right now, and I want to support their work. Um, And I also want to find ways to bring new readers into this ecosystem. And I think one of the best ways to do that is through social media.
5: You know, lots of news organizations are working with newsletters. They've been experimenting with them for a long time. Some aren't even experimenting. They've been doing a great job for a long time. Uh, The New York Times crossword and the cooking newsletter, for example, they're some of my favorites. What are some of your favorite newsletters that you uh, read?
6: Yeah, you know, we had talked uh, before about the New York Times crosser because I'm also a huge fan. Um, but I'm so I'm really interested in uh, lots of different types of newsletters. I've been focusing on tech newsletters right now because I'm interested in uh, you know scaling Chili Street and bringing it to even more readers. So you know I read some really you know well known ones like Morning Brew and The Hustle and The Skim. Uh, I also wanted to mention there's uh, another New Mexico-based newsletter that's really great. Uh, It's by Kelsey Atherton and Allie Mae Atherton called War is a Future Past, and it's all about military technology, and it's amazing. So um, I try to read a number of different things, and there's a lot of lessons to be gleaned from the ones that do it really well.
5: And what are those? I mean, what makes a newsletter not just successful monetarily, but fun to read or interesting or what makes it one of the emails that you read in the morning among the pile you delete?
6: Exactly. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're the same way. You wake up and your inbox is just full of things that you don't want to read. So how do you create something that you do want to read? Um, I think it's a combination of personality, you know, you want to read an email from your best friend, but maybe not from, you know, a business that you you utilized once or something like that. Um, but I'm also trying to bring things to the table that you're not necessarily going to see uh, elsewhere on the internet unless you're on every single platform monitoring it day and night. So uh, I think people, you know, we talk a lot about doom scrolling and then just being overwhelmed by the amount of bad news that can be out there. So, you know, I love the idea of mixing up the more important solemn stories with things that are just kind of interesting or fun or weird um, and social media is just a great mix of that in of itself. So I want this newsletter to be reflective of that. Can you give me
5: an example of some of the things that you've found on social media and put in the newsletter? I know it's it's young still the newsletter, but uh, tell give us some examples.
6: Yeah, so you know it'll be everything from a uh, New Mexico politician spelling chili with an I instead of an E and then the response that getting on the internet. Um, Or also one of my favorites was a couple of issues ago, a uh, New Mexico based Twitter user made a joke about wanting to lick the sidewalk after she had her vaccination. And then a national outlet picked up this story and wrote this larger piece about people tweeting weird things about wanting to lick things once they're vaccinated. Now, you know that may seem like a silly story, but it's still something you know, kind of interesting to read that you're probably not going to you know, see or read in a, in a different outlet.
5: When you're out there looking at what news organizations are doing with their newsletters and, and what folks are doing, it can be hard to mix news and what's popular on social media and what's popular in newsletters. I was watching the Washington Post started trying to reach young people where they are uh, on TikTok and started doing some newsy TikToks really brief, but maybe with a little dancing. And they were just savaged by grownups saying, this is beneath you, Washington Post. Um, You know, what do you think about that?
6: Yeah, I think we have to be really careful about holding our nose when it comes to social media. I mean, the bottom line is that uh, there are millions of especially younger people on social media but people of all ages who uh, are consuming their news that way. I mean quite frankly that's probably one of the main ways that I consume my news these days Um, and so we have to as news organizations find readers figure out where they are and meet them where they're at. So I think the post has done a great job of doing that and I think other news organizations are really going to find that it's a critical piece of their business model and reader engagement to be more online when it comes to social media.
5: In an ideal world, where do you see Chili Street going? What's the future look like?
6: Well, my dream has always been to create an organization that I can uh, use to employ New Mexico journalists, and bring in new people to the fold. Uh, So I'd still love to do that. You know, right now, we're still uh, very small, um, but I'm really excited about the fact that we're growing really quickly and we have a really high uh, open rate for our emails, meaning people are not only receiving this in their inbox, but they're opening it, they're reading it, they're clicking on the links. And so I think that has some really good prospects for our business model.
5: Marie Siebacher, thank you so much for being with us today.
6: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: You might have caught in a recent episode that we sat down with New Mexico Environment Department Secretary James Kenny to get an update on PFAS contamination near New Mexico military installations. PFAS are a family of chemicals uh, that are found, among other things, in firefighter foams used at those military bases, and we have documented for over a year now that contamination, especially around Cannon and Holloman Air Force bases, When Secretary Kenney was in our studio, we also took the time to talk to him about work his office is doing to really change the way the oil and gas industry is managed and regulated in New Mexico to offset the impacts of climate change, which as our heat wave continues, we are all feeling on a daily basis. Uh, Correspondent, environmental correspondent Laura Paskus sat down with him to talk about all of these issues it's quite an undertaking for a department, as you will hear, with not a lot of bodies and many, many pumping sites all over the state. So here now, Secretary James Kenny and correspondent Laura Pasquez.:
7: Welcome, Secretary Kenny. Thanks for joining me on New Mexico in Focus.:
0: Thank you for
8: having me.
7: So As we're taping this in mid-June, New Mexico is experiencing crazy heat, there's wildfires, we're watching reservoirs and rivers drop, Um, climate change impacts are everywhere in the state Um, and you can feel it (laughs) today. Um, As part of Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's efforts on climate change, she had directed the New Mexico Environment Department as well as other agencies. Um, to work on cutting greenhouse gas emissions and today I'd like to talk a little specifically about efforts on cutting emissions from the oil and gas industry. Um, What are sort of the most robust pieces of that for the Environment Department?
8: Uh, The New Mexico Environment Department is focusing on issuing um, rules that would uh, limit emissions from oil and, and gas operations. Uh, Those will not only benefit local air quality, but they'll also address climate impacts as well. Uh, We hope to take those rules to the Environmental Improvement Board, which is essentially the last stop before they're adopted in uh, September of this year. The other thing we're doing is we're making sure we're getting out into the field using whether it's people or technology to ensure that oil and gas operators are complying with their existing permits. Um, and we're seeing widespread non-compliance, which tells us those rules are really essential.
7: So let's talk about the inspectors part first. Um, what, when, when they're not in compliance, kind of what does that look like on the ground and what does that mean, either for the climate or local communities?
8: When you, when an oil and gas operation is not in compliance, it could be a number of different things. So not all sort of violations are, are equal. Um, But what we'll tend to see and what we're most concerned about are those that release emissions into the air. Because those are the ones that impact frontline communities and adversely affect our air quality. So those are the ones that we consider the most grave. Um, And what that can look like on the ground is you can sometimes hear it. You can sometimes smell it. You can sometimes see stuck equipment or broken pipes, things like that. but oftentimes you need uh, these infrared cameras that will help you v- actually visualize. It'll make an invisible plume visible. And those are really helpful in our compliance efforts.
7: So there's tens of thousands of wells in New Mexico. How, d- how does anybody keep up with all of those?
8: Yeah, there's, again, two answers to that question is, one, based on our resources, we can't. So we make uh, best, we, we prioritize when we see a problem, as I said, those that are causing actual emission problems are our highest priority and we try to tackle those as quickly as possible. Um, we have about seven, uh, air inspectors and one attorney for the whole state of New Mexico to handle anything that's a violation of an air quality permit or rule, not just oil and gas. So we have to be judicious about how we proceed. Um, We've relied also on the Environmental Protection Agency to help us with not only collecting evidence, but then also helping us with the litigation components of it, um, provided a, a company doesn't want to settle. So that's, that's one area that, um, that we focus on. And the other is to ensure that uh, we use as much technology as possible. Um, and that helps us save the human capital component. So something like a flyover in a helicopter or a plane, where we can cover huge amounts of territory uh, in an afternoon. That's that's another way in which we do, can do our compliance inspections.
7: And then on the ozone rule, which am I correct that um, by cutting these emissions, you're you're cutting these sorts of um, it, greenhouse gases that that. Are affecting our climate and then these sort of localized pollutants it's cutting both of those how does that work is it um, mandating that oil and gas operators make certain types of changes
8: yeah so our two-year process that got us to this point of being collaborative with both industry and NGOs I think and the public allowed us to come up with a a rule that has a lot for everybody if you will Um, and the proposed rule, the rule we're taking for adoption, um, focuses on sort of the, the bigger emitters, uh, as well as the smaller emitters and gives a foundational basis that everybody has to, again, this is the proposal that everybody has to comply with leak detection and repair requirements, um, ensure that their equipment is not leaking and causing problems. Um, there will be some based on the, emissions that a particular well site could emit. There is, there are requirements then to add on controls and to maintain those controls. It's not set it and forget it. Um, so we've really tried to figure out the best way in which we could make, gain emission reductions um, in, in the role. So I, there's a little bit for everybody in the role, if you will.
7: So I have heard industry often complains they're overregulated in New Mexico, particularly in thinking about the Permian Basin, which is in Texas and New Mexico. Is there a danger if New Mexico enacts regulations like this one that um, operators could just move over the border to Texas or? um,
8: Yeah, so um, Laura, again, that's a good question. The way we're handling that is one, I've been in contact with uh, the, the TCQ, the Texas equivalent of the Environment Department, um, and we are working on some collaborative efforts to ensure that we're equally holding uh, the industry accountable on both sides. But the bigger point here to make is that air quality is regulated at the federal level on a basin. And New Mexico and Texas share that basin. So as air quality continues to diminish which it is and has been for quite some time, um, the feds will come in and ratchet everybody down. So thinking about moving from New Mexico to Texas doesn't solve the air problem that we have between our two states. Um, It only would aggravate it if somebody moved there because there are less controls or less enforcement. Um, I think most companies that we've talked to are proud to be in New Mexico and they want to do right by the state and they're saying that because they they live here and um, their investors want are focused on climate as well. So in a lot of ways you could think where some people criticize that we're pushing industry out, their investment is valued even more so by their reductions here.
7: If enacted, if promulgated, how how long, what kind of a timeline are we looking at for this rule in terms of actually on the ground changes and tightening up of those emissions?
8: So if the rule were adopted at our September hearing and moved forward from there. We're looking at those rules being uh, effective in in September, I'm sorry, in the spring of the following year. Um, And that means that almost instantly uh, industry would have to begin performing leak detection and repair. Uh, They would have to quantify their emissions and they would have to, those changes would instantly start helping our air quality. So hopefully in the spring of next year, we will be on target.
7: So I'm curious, is this all fast enough in terms of what scientists are telling us we need to do in terms of stopping greenhouse gas emissions, transforming away from fossil fuel economy? I realize this rule is one part of that, but Mm -hmm. are we moving fast enough as a state, as a society, as a species? (laughs)
8: I, I think we could always move a lot faster in in focusing on climate change. Um, and in many ways, we're very proud of what we've done in this administration um, with the backdrop of an unexpected global pandemic happening as well. Um, but that doesn't, we, we never stopped working on our climate efforts, which is a point of pride for both. Um, my colleague at Sarah, uh, Carol Probst, and myself as the co-chairs of the Climate Change Task Force, um, and we continue to make it a whole-of-government effort. So it's not just two people working on it; it's every agency. Um, but that said, we need we need as much grassroots as we do, you know, statewide and federal leadership, and that's why we've kicked off a number of things this summer to bring more um, communities into the fold to get those better ideas and to keep them floating forward.
7: All right, Secretary Kenny, thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you. All right, we will round out this week's show with a little bit of extra content for you. We have done this before, but every week uh, with the Line Opinion Panel, We warm up the group and ourselves with the discussion of some other top stories of the week that we just don't have time for in the show, but we have time for it here in the podcast. So we'll go around the table now to find out what else has caught the attention of our line opinion panelists.
1: Let me start with, let's see here. How about Ed Perea, our law enforcement expert? Good to see you, Ed. Thanks for coming today. Let's hear one more thing.
3: Well, Eugene, thanks for that law enforcement introduction. That's what I'm going to jump on. Crime, crime, crime Mm -hmm. all the time. We're seeing some very interesting news. Uh, It it sure sounds like crime is statistically is catching up to what Albuquerque has been experiencing for some time. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a period of time where we didn't see a major reduction in crime. The rest of the country had enjoyed that for a while. But Mm -hmm. it sounds like uh, the rest of the country is beginning to see what we've in the In New Mexico, the Albuquerque, Bernalillo County area has been uh, experiencing for some time. I'd like to see what the correlations are. I know there's a lot of speculation as to what might be driving the crime rates, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'd like to see more study on that. It'll be interesting. Is it only the criminal justice system, which is... Seems to be what most people WILL point their fingers at, but mm-hmm. I think there's more to it than that. So uh, more to come on that. I, I, I appreciate
1: you putting it out that like that, because I would tend to agree in my gut. There's something here that we just don't know factually. We need to kind of figure out. Now I confess I missed the president's speech on crime yesterday. I was a little bit busy at that time of day, so I'm not quite sure what he proposed. But I, I believe he's also saying ED, more resources for law enforcement and for or for police. Did you hear the same thing? And is is that part of the solution here?
3: Well, I think so. And it's not only resources in itself, it's how we use the resources. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the key. I, you know, I've never seen in my uh, nearly a quarter century in, in law enforcement, uh, I've never seen only money as the solution to a, a problem. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, too much money may make contribute to new problems that didn't uh, exist. So I think it's, it, it has to be strategic mm-hmm. uh, as far as the approach is concerned. And it really has to involve all the stakeholders. But you know, whenever I hear someone say we need more money, we need more money, uh, I kind of cringe a little bit and say, let's hold on a second. Mm-hmm. You know, What do we really need? So we need to identify what the problems are instead of just the symptoms and to throw money in it. So I'm always a little cautious when I hear, let's just throw more sure. resources. Good that points part. there, excellent points.
1: YOU KNOW, JUST FOBBING IT OFF ON THE PANDEMIC JUST DOESN'T QUITE GET DEEP ENOUGH FOR ME, AND I HEAR YOUR POINT ON THAT. WE NEED A MUCH HARDER LOOK AT WHAT'S THE CAUSE OF THIS THAN JUST THE PANDEMIC. IT, it JUST CAN'T BE THAT SIMPLE. SERGE MARTINEZ, PROFESSOR, GOOD TO SEE YOU AS ALWAYS, UNM POLITICAL SCIENCE SPECIFICALLY. WHAT'S YOUR ONE MORE THING THIS WEEK?
4: Um, HEY, JEAN. Mm-hmm. Uh, SO ON MONDAY, I THINK IT WAS, OR TUESDAY THIS WEEK, THE SUPREME <laughs> Court unanimously told the ncaa that their business model of making millions and millions and millions of dollars on the backs of unpaid labor in the form of athletes is not actually um, allowed under the law there's a really narrow case about whether schools could provide certain educational benefits like uh, laptops heaven mm-hmm. forbid, to students um but it really exposed the whole house of cards for what it was, which is, you know, this this unsustainable um, organization that really thrives and can only survive by saying, we, it's impossible, it cannot be done to pay the students or share the revenue with this with the athletes uh, that they're generating. Mm-hmm. And frankly, for me, it couldn't have come a minute too soon. It didn't come a minute too soon. This is, you know. It's been untenable and unconscionable for many years the way that schools, including the one I work at, have said, no, we're going to profit handsomely off of the athletes, but not pay them for their work and not Mm -hmm. share that revenue with them in any meaningful way. Um, And like I said, the ruling on Monday was pretty narrow, Mm -hmm. but it is undoubtedly going to grow to engulf the entire undertaking. And I don't see the NCAA surviving, frankly, past... Seriously. Seriously. You don't see a uh-huh. They their whole model is based on this, you know, unquestionable control over eligibility and and keeping students from uh, being able to share in in the revenue. Mm-hmm. They put on a heck of a basketball tournament every spring, but that's about the only thing they do well. And I don't see this ongoing control over the athletes lasting now that the Supreme Court has said no. This model is not constitutional. You can't keep doing this.
1: Mm-hmm. I got to ask, as a a follow-up, I have no, personally, a side either way on this, or a thought either way, I should say. I wonder, though, Serge, is there a potential downside here? Meaning, are we headed back to the old days where, you know, boosters were writing big secret checks to people, people to athletes, and buying them cars, and helping them just sort of get by on the day-to-day? Are we
4: headed towards another scenario like that with this kind of a situation? Uh, Gene, I'm going to Take issue with those being the old days that's what happens now it's yes, all secret you're right <laughs> and it's not above board athletes don't have the opportunity opportunity to understand what's really going on or mm-hmm. compare prices or compare offers um and it is the students the athletes are the ones who are putting in all the labor they're literally on their backs right with their bodies um that making all this money that everyone's paying for they deserve to to get compensated for that get a piece of it mm-hmm. i mean i think it it opens the door for much less shadiness of that nature, right? It does raise questions about can UNM continue to pay its coaches unbelievable amounts of money, mm-hmm. right? Because that revenue should, and you know, athletes will be demanding, rightly so, to be compensated, to get a share of that. That was, that
1: was my next question. I don't mean to go on about this, but I'm glad you brought this up. Can a schools afford this? I mean, literally, I mean, if you're talking about, having to pay every athlete on, I don't know how many programs, the basketball program, the football program, I mean, where does mm-hmm. this stop? Is it for every program? Is it for
4: tennis? Is it for, you see where I'm going here? I mean, how could a school afford this? Absolutely. I mean, I think you're right. There's, you know, there'll be some market effects and different schools will, schools that are able to share revenue and more revenue, right, maybe will attract better or more athletes. But I think you know UNM pays hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to much much more than any of our educators you know, on campus to our coaches right because the model is we don't have to pay the athletes right so if that does, if that's not sustainable, then good mm-hmm. right That was flawed to begin with and should, um, should never have been seen as this golden this goose that would continue laying golden eggs forever. Mm-hmm. I LOVE
1: THIS DISCUSSION. THANK YOU FOR BRINGING THAT UP AND DURING OUR ONE MORE THING. THAT'S WORTHY OF SOMETHING WHEN IT COMES DOWN uh, TO THE NITTY-GRITTY. WE'LL BE TALKING ABOUT THAT ONE FOR SURE. Um, sure. DID NOT MEAN TO LEAVE OUR FRIEND GIOVANNA Rossi JUST WATCHING ON THE SIDELINES THERE. SORRY. IT'S BEEN A WHILE SINCE WE'VE SEEN YOU. THANK YOU FOR JOINING US AGAIN. REALLY GOOD TO SEE YOU.
2: GREAT TO BE HERE. THANK YOU. Um, SO MY ONE MORE THING IS ABOUT WOMEN IN APPOINTED AND ELECTED OFFICE. Mm -hmm uh i i you know my entire career pretty much has been uh focused on uh you know when women and girls thrive whole families and whole communities thrive Mm
4: -hmm.
2: and certainly when we see more women uh being appointed and elected to public office that's a good thing um and one thing i want to mention is uh senator anne Riley who was in the state Senate in the 90s. She was my first political boss. I worked for her when she was in the Senate in uh, 93 to 96. Mm-hmm. She passed away recently. And, um, and so I just wanted to kind of mention that and, mm-hmm. uh, and just pay a little tribute to her and her work. She worked at Sandia National Labs for 30 years. Wow. Um, she worked in economic development and was an advocate for women Uh, IN THIS STATE FOR SO, SO LONG, um, AND SHE'LL BE REALLY VERY MUCH MISSED. Um, ON THAT NOTE, I WOULD LIKE TO SAY THAT um, WE'VE SEEN A REAL GROWTH IN WOMEN IN APPOINTED ELECTED OFFICE SINCE Mm -hmm. SHE WAS IN THE SENATE. Mm -hmm. Um, AND JUST OF NOTE, OBVIOUSLY, WE HAD um, CONGRESSWOMAN DEB HOLLAND MOVE UP INTO uh, THE SECRETARY OF INTERIOR POSITION. And then we've had a kind of like a domino, uh, you know, sort of effect. So we've had uh, Melanie Stansbury replace her Mm -hmm. and she made such an impact with her very short speech um, when she was sworn in, but very effective, uh, putting her hand on the U.S. Constitution um, and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo instead of the Bible. I thought that was notable. And, um, And then Representative Pamela Herndon now filling her seat. Um, really exciting. Uh, Pamela has been a community leader and advocate for so long in this, in this state and in this city. Um, so really happy to see her. And then of course, um, social, uh, Tom Torres small is now the undersecretary of the department of agriculture. So, uh, lots of movements, lots of interesting new, um, appointments and, and elected positions. So excited to see, um, SEE WHERE THIS GOES.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: GOOD STUFF THERE. I'M GLAD YOU NOTED YOUR, your FORMER BOSS. Uh, SHE SOUNDS LIKE A PIONEER, SOMEONE THAT SHOULDN'T BE FORGOTTEN, CERTAINLY, AND WE ALWAYS LIKE TO DO NOTE FOLKS PUBLICLY WHEN THEY DO PASS. So WE'VE DONE GREAT THINGS FOR NEW MEXICO, AND I REALLY APPRECIATE YOU DOING THAT, Giovanna. ABSOLUTELY.
0: thank you as always for tuning in and staying informed and engaged as we always say we do appreciate it and we encourage you to keep up with us throughout the week on all of our social media platforms whether it's youtube facebook instagram or twitter we love to hear what is your favorite and those are your avenues to let us know what you want us to be covering on the show We love to get that feedback, good, bad, and otherwise. We also love it when you leave us a review of this podcast. It really helps us out and spread the word. Let other people know to subscribe uh, in this way to get the content. We work so hard to bring you each week. I appreciate the team here. Senior producer Matt Grubbs, producer Kathy Wimmer, of course, host Gene Grant, our entire production team, headed up by production manager Anthony Lostetter. Uh, Just a very talented team. We're working really hard each and every week. And as always, we appreciate you for tuning in. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.